Hey, um, ladies, especially those, I'm not say, I'm singling you out, but there's a lot more involved. But if you make baked a turkey for last weekend, would you stand just for a second? All you turkey preparers. We are so thankful. Thank you. And uh, that's uh, Linda Stangle's life group. The ladies fed us robustly. Thank you. And it was a great, great success. The, uh, I want to thank all of you that brought food and cooked and made your, you know, servings for 96. That was no small task, but uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. And one of the things we did there was we, we were going after Deuteronomy 16, 16, right? Don't come empty-handed. Bring an offering. And we watched all morning. Uh, Peggy, do you want to share what you saw on the, on the offering part? What blessed you? That would give me a chance to strap on my microphone. Put me on the spot. Uh, um, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. Anyways, it just blessed me to see Jane and Wendy um, bring Dawson and Jeffrey, walk them up to the front, and instruct them to drop their little coins in the chest. And... Um, I know Jeff thinks I over-spiritualize things, but I said, you know, who knows? God could have changed that into $1,000, you know, just because the heart is so pure, just as it's dropping out of their hands. So that's he said, oh, <laughs> anyways, I don't know, but I'm just saying that I believe God just uses anything. We give it all, and I just thought that was a real blessing. Is that what you wanted me to share? Thank you. Okay. Yeah, good training on that one over there. And so uh, we're 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 ready. We want to give you the offering that you brought, and all these little ones that brought their their offerings. And I know I watched your kids. You took your kids up, right? And and all the young people bless you. What do you think a little group like us could do over a turkey dinner at reducing our debt? Also, drum roll, please. Here's the offering results on the screen. Thank you for that. (laughs) That's pretty amazing, huh? Bringing our little dimes and nickels. And I tell you, we've not rolled that much coin. Amen. In a long time. You know, that's why they used to have those offering buckets made out of metal, so you could hear it clank, 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 clank. But, uh, boy, we were up there for two days rolling coins. We ran out of rollers and wrappers and everything. It was, it was a blessing. Lots and lots of coins. And it all added up. So um, I'll be sending out a little email here soon to everybody that's on the email list. If, you're not on, if you don't have email, we'll try and get it to you by snail mail. If you don't think we have your email, just jot it on something and stick it in the offering boxes on the wall so we can include you. Uh, we just can give you the first quarter update for the church. Um, just this has brought our, our our total debt load down to what now? About forty five hundred dollars. That's real reachable, isn't it? And so we started the year with about twelve thousand in debt, and after the first quarter, we're down to forty five hundred. So God is blessing, and I'd like to insert that. Uh, with our new budget for this year um, in place after the first quarter, we were within $500 of meeting the entire budget for the first quarter. 
So financially, <laughs> hallelujah, evidently you're being blessed. Uh-huh. Because the church's finances are only a reflection of what God's doing in the body. We don't have a way of generating other income. It's only by our tithe and our offering and our faithful giving to the house here that, that we use together. So blessings on you. And we're grateful that uh, some of you that haven't been able to tithe in a while, right? Because you didn't have a job. And so now you're getting work and things are happening. And... Hallelujah. This is good. God's economy is in charge. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. We're continuing this morning. I'm very, I, I'm very excited about this passage this morning in Hebrews chapter 4. And I was so excited when I was upstairs before church that I was going to come down and ask if I could preach first. And then do all the music and stuff second. I was just ready. I wanted to go. I was just, let me at it. This is a great passage of Scripture. So I'm going to give myself some fighting room up here. And uh, now I feel like I can move without bumping into something. Just by a quick review, as we've been looking at the book of Hebrews every week now for a number of weeks, I, I wrote seven points, all having P's, to remind myself, and I thought I'd share with you, of what I've heard so far. Number one, Jesus is the personification of God. We find that in Hebrews chapter 1, where it says that uh, God has spoken to this, us in these last days by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the personification of God. We say God incarnate, God in the flesh. This is Jesus. Number two, he was perfect, fully human, fully God. He was a perfect, fully human, fully uh, God man. And we, we call him the best man. He's the best man. I like this phrase, son of God, because it says clearly who he is. But he's also called the son of man. And that rings true in my heart because Jesus is the one God-man that comprises and is able to minister to every single person ever born. He is the answer to all of man's needs. And therefore, he is the son of man or the son of man's needs. And he meets those needs perfectly. In verse 9, it says, or excuse me, that's not where I want to be. Um, 2 verse 9 says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Jesus became a little lower than the angels for a season, so that he could relate to us as mankind. He is the perfect, fully human, fully God-man. Number 3, P, he's the purchaser of our salvation. He is our best hope for peace with God. You know, there are lots of ways people are trying to find peace with God. And when they can't find it, then they just abandon their search. Generally, they just give up. Then they try to conclude there is no God. And I like this t-shirt that says God doesn't believe in atheists. You know, he still loves them. He's still after them. 
He is not going to give up on us. As I think it was Gene Getz said, he is the pit bull of heaven. He will stay on you until, you know, he'll latch on to you and he will chase you down. He's the hound dog of heaven. He is after you because he purchased our salvation. And uh, isn't that how you like it? You know, you buy somebody a gift, you want to chase them down until they have it. What good is it sitting on your shelf at home? doesn't do you any good. You got it just for them. And Jesus purchased our salvation and he is chasing us down one by one to experience that freedom that he provides. Number four, and this is where we'll get to today, is that he is painfully able to sympathize with us. He is our best help during temptation. And that's the title of the message today, the best help during temptation. Let me give you the other three. Number five, for me, he is the provider of resources to live by. He is the provider. I had the word, I used a couple of other P words in here for myself, and one was the profferer. And I thought, well, nobody will understand that word. I don't even understand that word. But, and I thought, he's more than the supplier. In other words, the supplier could receive from somebody else and then hand it to you and be the middleman. But Jesus is not the supplier. He is the provider. He's the one that made it possible. He produced what was needed and then gave it to us. He provided for us. And he continues to provide for you and I every day the resources we need to live in him. He makes the great exchange with us all the time. I was thinking as we were singing this morning, uh, that, that passage in Isaiah where it says, He gives us beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Always the great exchange. He takes our dirty rags, our filthy righteousness, and gives us his in place. What a great exchange we're in all the time. It's always available. We don't have to live in the low place of life. We can come up and live in Christ. Christ in you is the hope of glory. In fact, I would say it this way. That passage means this. Christ living out his life through you is God's only hope of being glorified in the earth. He has no other plan than to live his life out through you and I to demonstrate who he is among people who don't know him. And by them coming to know him from your witness and your testimony, he is then glorified in the earth. That's a lot of words for a little verse. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Number six, he is permanently available and accessible. Permanently available and accessible. He's not hiding from us. He's made himself available. Why is the word disponible coming into my head? Is that a Spanish word for available? Oh my gosh. Just ran right through there. I had a little field day all by itself. I thought, disponible. What does that mean? <laughs> Thank you. It means available. Jesus is disponible. Amen. Wow, that was fun. You should get in here sometime with me. <coughs> There's a lot of stuff goes on between my ears that it's like a singular party all by itself. Wow, that was fun. He is permanently available and accessible. Not only is it available, but the doors hanging wide open all the time. Come. To me, Jesus said, all who are what? Heavy laden, burdened, weary. And what makes the great exchange? Here's another great exchange passage. And I'll give you rest. Come, learn of me. 
right? You find rest for your soul. Oh, he is accessible. Number seven, priest above all. And I'm seeing this in Hebrews thus far, these seven things. I don't know if I can get all the way to the end of Hebrews using peas or not, but it's worked so far. I put priest above all, and I, yeah, perfect, thank you. There's another P, let me write that down quick. <laughs> we'll forget. I, I thought of that when we say Jesus is Lord of Lords, and we use capital L, little L, right? Lord of all lords. And he is King, capital K, little K, of all kings. And I thought he is priest above all priests. He is the priest we need. Now let's talk about him today here in, in Hebrews chapter 4. 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. Aaron, the first high priest, right? So also, Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he, that is God, who said to him, Jesus, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. And uh, I didn't write that last sentence, but sorry. Don't let it distract us too far. Seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Turn with me to chapter 9, just moments here, and... If you're, I just take the moment in case we're unfamiliar with the natural tabernacle or the natural temple that was built on the earth, uh, the one that the children of Israel carried around in the wilderness for 40 years that was built according to the plan that God showed Moses, the tent and the, and the outer court, and then the inner chamber, uh, the the holy place, and then the holy of holies within that, this earthly tabernacle. It talks about it here in chapter 9. It says, Then indeed even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, 
the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. I learned it, the holy of holies, the holy place and the holy of holies. In the holy of holies, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the tablets of the covenant. And above it were were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services, right? They were always putting on the showbread on the table of showbread. And they were making sure the lamp on the other side of that holy place was lit and burning, right? And there was always that altar of incense that was burning, which they put new incense on morning and evening. And this represented the prayers of God's people coming up before him. And God said that they're the, out in the courtyard, you know, there was the altar, the raisin altar where sacrifice for sin was made. And then next there was the laver, the golden laver, or the bronze laver. That was that place where the priests would look at themselves and wash and make sure they were clean before they went in before God. To perform the sacrifices and the services of toward God and for the people. But into the second part, verse 7, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. That's significant. As long as this one on the earth was still standing, the way into the real one, the real one, say that with me. The real one. The real one's in heaven. Are you with me? The real one's in heaven. It was symbolic, verse 9, for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerning only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. With the greater, the more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Not with blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purity of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Jesus, the high priest, in verse or chapter 4 when we read Seeing then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Would you see it with me this way? He was not about taking care of what happened on the earth. He wasn't going to go into that physical tabernacle, that temple here on earth. Although he was there numerous times, right? Upsetting money changer tables and doing all kinds of things at that temple. But he knew that all of this on the earth was only a representation, only a model of what existed in heaven. Is there a a literal, physical kind of temple and tabernacle and all that in heaven? I don't know. But I'm not worried about it. 
Okay? Don't be worried about it. The Bible says there's something there. And when Jesus offered His life on the cross and the blood flowed, it said He showed up at the Holy of Holies with His own blood. And He presented it before the Father and said, This is payment enough for the entire creation. All of the men, women, and children that need salvation, I pay for today by my life. My sinless presentation to you, Father. And look at this. Jesus said, if I present that before the Father, you find this in Acts chapter 1 and 2, that if he says, if I go and present that before the Father, and he accepts that sacrifice in front of the altar and puts it on the mercy seat once and for all, he said, then the Holy Spirit will come. And in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit showed up. Right? And people were filled with the Holy Ghost, spoke in tongues, prophesied, all kinds of miracles started happening. And that was, in fact, proof positive on earth that the blood had been accepted on the altar before God in heaven. Had it not been accepted, had that sacrifice not been enough to redeem you from your sinful life, then the Holy Spirit would not have come. But it came. He came. And so we have proof positive that Jesus' blood is enough in the Holy of Holies in heaven. We have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, the writer of Hebrews says, not into here in this physical place, although... You remember with me that on the day Jesus was crucified, what happened? Man, things were shaking and baking, eh? And things were moving and shaking. And inside the temple, inside where nobody could go except for the priests and the high priests, that curtain that separated man from God on earth was torn in half from the top to the bottom. Woo! That signified the way was gone in two. Jesus had been there, and now it was open for everybody to go in. I'm sure the priests got their needles and thread out. Because they were about to lose the corner on the market. This was now going to be open ground for everybody to go in and become a priest before God. And that's what God wanted for us, was for each one of us to be his own priest before God. I'm liking this passage. We have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. I tell you what, this just separates him from everything and anybody that ever lived on earth. You can't tell me Confucius has it figured out. I don't believe that Hare Krishna's got the corner on this thing. I don't think that, uh, you know, postmodernism is the way to go. I don't think that science is the way to pursue God. All those things could come subservient to this one man, Jesus Christ, who paid the ultimate price to get in to the throne room of God. Man. So let's hold fast our confession. More to come on that at the end. And that's actually the conclusion. So I won't go to it now or I'd be done already. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. As it goes into chapter 5, it talks about the requirements for a priest. One, the priest had to be sympathetic. In other words, to be a priest between God and man, you had to be human. You had to know what it was like to fail. You had to have your own weaknesses that were present in your life. When people came to bring their sacrifice for sin and to stand before that altar and bring their little lambs with them and say, or their turtle doves or whatever was required on that day, whether it was some mix of meal and oil, they were bringing something that was a sacrifice to hand to the priest and say, this is for my sin. 
And interestingly enough, even the high priest, you'll find in Leviticus, I believe it's chapter 6, 6, where Aaron, as the first high priest, Moses told him, get a, get a sacrifice, go and slay it, take the blood, and take it inside there in front of God for yourself first. Present that sacrifice for yourself first, because you are also a dirty man. You're a sinful man. And you no sin's going to go into the presence of God. So you have to present blood on your own behalf. And then once God has accepted that, then take the blood and put it on the altar for the man who's presenting his own sinful sacrifice. You cannot represent him as though you're holy. You're unholy. Present the sacrifice for yourself and then for the offerer. And so the priesthood was to be made of men who could sympathize with those who were coming. And they would come with their contrition and their sacrifice, their best lamb, and saying, I've offended God, and this is what he requires of me today. I bring my sacrifice. I bring my brokenness to you. I offer this, the shedding of blood. Something has to die because I sinned. Right? The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. But the wages of sin was death. And God never required that we pay for our own sin. He always put an animal in place. So he'd bring that lamb. And in his contrition, he would confess his sin. And then they would kill the sacrifice and put the blood as the payment. Now the priest who was there to perform that service had to be able to sympathize with the person's need. Right? Isn't that what you want when you go to somebody and say, would you pray with me? Could you pray for me? I've sinned. I've fallen short. I want to confess. I want to repent. I want you to pray for me to be restored my relationship to God. Have a person say, well, I don't know what that's like. I mean, I've never, I'm holy, man. I've never sinned. I don't know. Why are you feeling so bad about all this? You want them to be aloof? Or, you know, I really don't have time. Because that sin stuff just slows down my day. I've got to go now. I'm not available. The priesthood had to be sympathetic. It says they had to be taken from among men, appointed for men, and things pertaining to God. He he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray. Some versions say that in their ignorance have gone astray. Since he himself is also subject to weakness. In Hebrews chapter 2, you may recall we read this a few weeks ago. Verse 17, Therefore in all things he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. That's the qualification for a priest. Jesus' priesthood is official. He has met the requirements. He is sympathetic. He's been tempted in every way as you have been. I know there's people who argue that point. Well, when was Jesus ever tempted with using heroin? You know, they get real specific. But if you're willing to study it out, just go look at Jesus fasting 40 days, 40 nights, drawing his soul out the old King James says, to the hungry. He was hungry. Forty days, forty nights, no food, and who comes to visit? The devil. 
Immediately the devil comes to tempt him. Hey, what do you say we make bread out of these rocks? You're the son of God. I mean, this is no problem for you, right? Now, to a hungry man, that could be a good offer. He was tempted at the level of the physical. To the core of his being, his body pressured him, and he refused. Well, that didn't work. So what do we do next? Hmm. How about we go up to the temple? we we'll go up to the pinnacle of the temple, right? See, now listen. You know, if you throw yourself off from here, he'll catch you. I mean, he won't let you dash your foot against a stone, right? That's what the word says. That's a mental trip for sure. That'll challenge your thinking, wouldn't it? Hmm, well, well, well. Now, Jesus, even in his weakened condition, physically weakened condition, his mental was on the ball. And he said, no, you're not supposed to tempt the Lord your God. He quoted scripture in that moment. Jesus was tempted physically. He was tempted mentally. And then the devil says, well, this will get him. Look at all these kingdoms of the earth. If you just bow down and worship me, it's all yours. That is a hugely spiritual temptation. We are built body, soul, and spirit. We are spirit, soul, and flesh. Jesus, after 40 days of fasting, took the one single devil, Satan himself, head to head, and defeated him on all three points. Study that out sometime. And you'll realize that Jesus, that was the day he confronted heroin. That was the day he confronted stealing. That was the day he confronted letting his body take control. Or letting his mind run his life. Or selling out at the spirit level. He was tempted in every way as you've been. Yet without sin. Oh, that is our hope. That is our anchor. That is our peace with God the Father. That Jesus never sinned. Second Corinthians 5, 17, 19 in there. You know, he who knew no sin, God made him to be sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of God in him. The great exchange. I couldn't do it. By his grace, he opens the door and says, come on in. Experience all of it. And the price is free. Sometimes it's hard to sell Jesus. Because there's not enough price involved. How much does it cost me to get saved like you want me to get saved today? I say, well, it's free. Oh, well, it can't be worth much. Well, listen, no, it's free today. It'll cost you the rest of your life. You've got to give it all. It says also in chapter 4, or 5, verse 4, it says, No man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God. For Jesus' priesthood to be authentic and to be official, he had to be called by God. And in the next two verses it says that God said, This day, you are my son, this day I have begotten you. You are my only begotten son. And I say today, and you are forever a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Was he called by God? Very, very specifically. It was not left up to us to try and figure out whether or not God sent him. God spoke numerous times. Wouldn't it have been cool to have been there the day Jesus was baptized? He came up out of the water. John the Baptist finally fulfilling that moment after the little argument. Well, you should baptize me. No, I'll baptize you. And What should it be? And, well, let's do it the way Father wants done. That's a good idea. Baptize the Jesus. And down comes a dove and lights upon him. And a voice speaks out of heaven. <laughs> Come on, isn't that exciting or what? This is my beloved son 
in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Hear him. Paul the Apostle, Saul of Tarsus, hadn't caught up to the speed with all this yet. He was still persecuting Christians later on, right? On the road to Damascus. And uh, boom! Flash of light. He's down. And then somebody's talking to him. And he's hearing it clearly. Who are you, Lord? Son Jesus. He didn't say, well, I'm some mystical, uh, spiritual imagination of your own. Just make me whatever you want me to be. And I'll be that for you. And I'll be that for somebody else. No, he said, I'm Jesus. I'm the one you're persecuting. You're persecuting my body. He's chasing believers around. Putting them in jail. He said, that's my body you're messing with. He didn't. He spoke right out of heaven. He's called of God. He's the Son of God. He's the only Son of God. There's no competition. When somebody says there's another way to heaven, just deny it. It's not true. It cannot be. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father unless he comes through me. Period. End. Final. But why would you want to go any other way? This is our great high priest who has suffered for us, who knows our temptations. He feels what we feel. He knows what we're going through. Personally, intimately, and he's called by God. He has an official priesthood. And if you look with me in chapter 7, I like this. I'd like to end with this part, which is only part 2 of 4. But hang in there. Come on. You can leave if you want. I'm just going to keep going. Because <laughs> I am having a good time. This is the word of the Lord today, and I'm excited about it. In the Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24, it says, But he, because he continues forever... Because he continues forever. Just before this, it says that men were priests, but they couldn't continue that forever because they kept dying off. You had to get a new one all the time. New generation, another priest, another priest, another priest, another priest. Jesus continues forever. He has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Jesus, the perfect high priest, the only one we'll ever need. No more dying off. No more dying off. He lives forever to be your high priest. He's the one that will go before God with you, for you, on your behalf. He lives and makes intercession constantly for you. You know, when I read things like this and it finally breaks through into my heart and my mind, I think, no wonder Paul wrote, if God be for me, who can be against me? He had a hold of this. He knew with this high priest on his side and him in allegiance and obedience to this high priest, now who's going to be against me? Who's going to wreak any kind of havoc in my life with Jesus on my side? I, I always share this 
in Revelation. He's talking to the churches, and he says, To him who overcomes. I just like this picture. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. And that's not where it stops. I mean, that would be enough. To sit in the lap of Jesus as he's seated on his throne. But then he says, I will allow him to sit with me in my throne, even as I am seated with my Father in his throne. I mean, you've got to have a couple of pretty big thrones. <laughs> Imagine that. There's the Father's giant throne. Big God. <laughs> Creator of the universe. He says, come on, Jesus, sit with me. He says, well, just a minute, Dad. Let me pick up one of my kids. And he reaches out and he picks you up. He says, I'll be right there. He picks you up and he says, here we are. He sits down on the Father's lap. And there you are seated on Jesus' lap. And the Father stretches out his arms and puts around both of you. If God be for me, who can be against me? Who is going to attack me sitting there? Who will be successful at trying to defeat my life if that's where I am? (laughs) You can't get me, devil. World, you can't have me anymore. Flesh, you will not win in this condition. I start hearing the scriptures just coming to life. You know that Jesus is a conqueror and he makes you more than a conqueror. Why do we get this privilege? Just because he decided to love us. Oh, and then you write the word grace out. You go, man, I'm starting to see it now. I get this grace thing. It's undeserved. We, we like the definition of grace, unmerited favor. Well, it's kind of an official definition, sort of Webster's and Vine's Greek dictionary, unmerited favor. But when you're sitting in it, it's got a feeling. It's got more than a verbal, technological, decision-making kind of static definition. You get to feel it. You get to feel the embrace of his love. You get to understand that he is on for you 150% to help you make it. Man. I love Jesus. (laughs) I don't know why he loves me, though. He just decided. I used to think it was because of how good looking I was. (laughs) And you know that's not true. Now, what about this? We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are. What about this temptation stuff? James chapter 1. Let's, I want to help you get a new view today. I'm hoping to change your mind. I'm looking for metanoia, a change of mind today, a change of view. And I'm going to do it in 10 minutes. Can you believe that? I'm going to change your mind in 10 minutes. Heck, I can't even change a diaper that fast. James chapter 1. My brethren, verse 2. My brothers, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Let patience 
have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Okay? James 1, 2, 3, and 4. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. The testing of your faith produces patience. First Peter chapter 1, just the next little letter over. Verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is the purpose of testing of your faith? And I've shared this lots of times, and I always love to share it again, um, about the little lady who passed away, and they found her Bible, Grandma passed away and they found her Bible. And as they were peeling through her lifelong Bible, they found all down the columns these letters, TP, TP, all over the place. TP, TP, TP. And in some places it was just T, no P. And they discussed among themselves and the family, what could this possibly mean? Until somebody figured it out and knew it meant tried, proved. Every time she'd find this place in the Bible where God said, you know, test me in this, or this is something I'll do for you, she'd put a T, I'm going to try this out. And when God proved himself faithful to his word, she'd put the P, proven, tried, proven. And there were a few T's that didn't have P's because she's still working on it. Isn't that great? Why? What is the testing for? The Bible's clear. James and Peter agree that when you come into various trials... Tests, ready? Temptations. It's so that your faith can be proven genuine. It's so that you can actually win. The test comes so that you can pass the test. In fact, if you'll study the passages about testing and trials in the New Testament, you will discover, as I have, and now you probably won't do it because I'm giving you the answer key, that the only time a test comes to you as a believer is when God knows you can pass. How often do we fail? Anybody else want to say regularly? <laughs> Amen. God knows me because I'm in detention all the time. You know, for not passing the test. You know, we have people in our, in our immediate family are, that are A++ students. I'm not that person. <laughs> you know, I'm the can you give me a chance person. Why does the test come? To prove your faith. That's what Peter said. To prove, right, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold. When it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus when he comes. Testing of your faith, according to James, produces patience. And patience will have its perfect work. So that you're complete and you lack nothing. Now, that's the word test, trial. Let's go back to James 1 and let's define further. 
Remember, I'm trying to change your mind. I'm trying to give you a new view. I'm trying to give you some hope here this morning that I think really will rejoice your soul when you get a hold of it. Okay? Am I talking too big? Am I selling too hard? Verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Mm. Now wait a second. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Okay. The first part, James 1, 3, and 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, talked about the test. Now it says temptation. The words have changed. But here's the thing I want to give you. Ready? You got it? You watch it? That's in English. In the original language in the Greek is exactly the same word. Test and temptation are the same thing. Oh, I thought they were different. Well, they're just different in English. They're no different in your spirit. They're the same word. So what does this tell us? This tells us that even though God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone by evil, therefore it says, don't say you've been tempted by God if you're tempted. That temptation is coming from you, the way you're built, the Bible says. It's something that is attractive to you in your carnal, fallen nature. It's something that you've desired maybe in the past, maybe just yesterday in the past. And, and it says, then that desire is enticed. Well, where does that come from? That's the devil. That's all those demons. That's the world order, the cosmos, the, the, the rule, the prince of power of the air, the rulers of the darkness. They, they come and say, yeah, you should do that. Come on, you've heard them, haven't you? I mean, it's like, I'm thinking in my heart, my mind, I shouldn't do that. And as soon as I think that, this fiery dart comes Zinging in from Ephesians chapter 6. And plants in my head where, according to 2 Corinthians 10, the warfare is. And I'm supposed to bring every thought captive to Christ. But that thing's on fire. And it says, you really ought to do that. You really ought to think that. You really ought to be mad. I mean, they pushed you too far this time. You can't be gracious. Love your neighbor a baloney. You kidding that guy's an enemy. And Jesus said, well, love your enemies. Pray for those who spitefully use you. No! I refuse. I am angry. Or pride. Some of the bigger sins. You know, I mess around with smoking, drinking, cussing. That's little stuff. It's pride and anger and all the things that get into your spirit. Stuff that really ruin your life. And that temptation comes and it's enticed. Come on. Let's do that. As soon as that thing's there, you know this. You've felt it. You've lived through it. You've hated it. You've repented of it. It kills you. As soon as it bears fruit, it brings forth death. And it's immediate. 
Oh, you know, Adam and Eve had the first storyline, right? And the day you do that, you'll die. And the devil said, well, you won't die. Go ahead, have a bite. Check it out. They didn't die. Not physically. But boy, did we cash in our chips that day. I mean, we lost it all. Spiritual dominion was handed over to the devil entirely. Adam sold us out. By the way, I don't know his name is Adam. We call him Adam because that's the Hebrew word for mankind. So you and I were there, and we're just as bad as he was. You know, we want to get even with him. He's probably waiting for you. Yeah, oh yeah, I've been watching your life too. (laughs) You'd have done no better than me if you were there. Well, let's not duke it out over that. I'm getting extra biblical here. So God, even though he doesn't tempt with evil, can't be tempted by evil. Jesus suffered because of evil, not his own. He suffered because he felt the temptation you felt. It pressured in on him. I mean, I've not been able to find a garden of Gethsemane where I prayed and sweat great drops of blood. I mean, this is the Savior we're talking about who knew what you felt. He knows what you're going through. He knows what my need is right now in the present. And even though you may be tempted by something that that derives from yourself and your fallen nature, and the enemy is setting it on fire and making it attractive or dressing it up or airbrushing it or something, so it looks okay, God will still use that moment to prove the genuineness of your faith. It's just a test. It's a test that God knows you've already got enough to pass. Come on, go back to school. When they handed out the test, that was your question. Do I have enough to pass? Do I know enough? Did I study? Do I have the answers? Do I know where we're going in this test? Can I clear the bar? Whatever it is. And then in a matter of whatever minutes or hours they gave you to take the test, the the bell was over, and then you're going to find out. Somebody's going to grade it. But in the day-to-day of life, you have a high priest who already knows what you're going through. He's sympathetic. He understands your pressure. And whether it's a test that he's allowing himself to prove to you what's inside of you, and he knows you can pass, or whether your flesh has drawn you into an enticement or a sin that was something from your past or even current, and the devil is trying to fan it into flame, God will not be a part of doing that to you. But in that moment, he will stand with his, with his I, I just hope you'll see him as proud, going, there's my kid, this is it. This is where they pass the test. I'm on their side. They'll call out to me any second. I know they will. And I'll be right there for them. Because I've already suffered this for them. I already nailed it to the tree. The victory's ours. Come on, kids. You can do it. In all the temptations which Christ endured, there was nothing within him that answered to sin. There was no sinful infirmity in him. While he was truly man and his divine nature was not in any way inconsistent with his manhood, there was nothing in him such as is produced in us by the sinful nature which belongs to us. Now, we need something to hang our hats on before we go home. First Corinthians chapter 10. This is not unfamiliar territory, but I hope we see it with a fresh look. New eyes, a renewed heart. Now, did I make it clear enough? I want to make sure I did this. 
that the word temptation and the word test or trial is one and the same? We don't separate them out and make one different from the other. If we can embrace them both and conclude that no matter its origin, whether it's a test from the Lord who, who's bringing it into our lives to, to check us out, really so that we find out what's in us. He already knows what's in us. He wants to bring it out so that you can see what's in you. Or whether it's a temptation that comes from the world, the flesh, or the devil. Either one. That test is coming. That trial is coming on you right now because you can pass it if you'll call out to the one who is your sympathetic high priest. And he'll carry you through it. I mean, even if, you know, I like Paul writing to Timothy. He says, man, flee youthful lusts. I mean, there are days when all of we should just look up and see nothing but Christians running. <laughs> Everywhere. Look at them go. They're like a bunch of chickens with their heads cut off. What's going on? They're fleeing temptation. They're running. The problem is we sort of park and stare down. I said, well, I'll just get a little closer and see if I can be even more stronger. You know, I mean, we, we're dumb. We're not real bright on this. We... I hear people say, I fell into sin. I said, no, 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 no. Rewrite the sentence. You jumped. Come on. Let's get honest here, right? I, I, oh, oops. Oh, surprise. I guess it doesn't really count then, does it? Come on. It was like was, there was a diving board and we took it. You know, Woo! we were in. That's a human nature wants to cover it up, make it different. God says, when you're done smoke screening here, we're going to call this sin. And when we call it sin, then you can bring it to the cross and you can repent and have a change of heart and mind. And then we get next time we'll pass the test, okay? First Corinthians 10, 13. This, this is a verse that I think, I thank God that probably the first pastor in my life said, you need to memorize this. And I did. You know, and, and the psalm makes sense. When the psalmist said, Your word have I hid in my heart, so I won't sin against you. Wherewithal shall a young man, these young people here, wherewithal shall the young person cleanse their way? By listening to his word. By taking heed according to your word. Sorry, all my memorization is mostly King James. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted, if you want, you could write tested, right? Tempted, tested, tempted, tested, same thing. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation, with the testing, with the trial, will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to, this says bear it, another verse says endure. Any other? Stand up under it. His promises are ours today. His help. He is accessible. He is available. He is the great high priest who has gone before us and suffered what we suffer. He knows what we feel. He is sympathetic. He is not. If you grew up with this, and we were just talking this week with someone who reaffirmed it. I always thought God was just sort of had his hand cocked back in heaven just waiting for me to make a failure. He was just waiting for me to get out of line and boom, he was going to nail me. This was the, I call it the big stick God. 
He's the big stick guy. Got a big stick just watching over the earth, waiting for people to get out of line. He sin, bopping, bopping. You know, it's like one of those little games where the things pop up and you got to pound down, pound them down all the time. Only that's not God. He's there with you in the temptation. He's there with you in the test. He's the one that's running alongside as you run. You're running with perseverance, this race that he's set out in front of you. And it's filled with briars and thorns at times. And there are tests and there are hurdles and there are problems and there are temptations. And we can use the words in English. It's okay. There's a difference for us between test and temptation. And we can differentiate. That's all right. We should. Understand, is it coming from God? Is it coming from the devil? Is it coming from my own flesh? Wherever it's coming from, Jesus, deliver me. Wherever it's coming from, Jesus, give me the strength. Let me call out to the high priest and come before him and say, intercede for me now. Make intercession. He ever lives to make intercession for us. So that we can pass. Why? So that our faith will be proven genuine. And when it is, then when Jesus comes, it will be to his glory. There's a genuine, there's a genuine article. That's the real thing right there. Job comes to mind. The devil's parading around in front of God saying, hey, you know. And he says, have you considered Job? Wow. I mean, that's a big book of tests right there. Have you considered Job? He is the genuine article. Oh, yeah, well, you give me his flesh. Oh, he'll curse you. Can't kill him. You read the book. I mean, that guy's pressed to the maximum. I've read that and thought, please, God, not me. Right? I just, I don't, if you bring it, then you're, you know I'm the genuine article, but right now I don't feel qualified. I'm not there. I think if my, my family was taken away from me, you know how important family is to us. I mean, if my family was taken I'd just be curled up in a ball in a corner somewhere, quivering, not knowing what to do with myself. I wouldn't do anything. I'd starve to death over there in the corner because I just, I'm not Job. I don't think I am. But God said, have you considered the genuine article? So when trial and temptation comes to you, we all have different ones, don't we? God's proving us, proving us, causing us to understand we're a real thing. We got it. We're okay. We're, we're faithful. Oh, we're human. Come on, we fail all the time. You know, we should greet each other. Hey, failure. You know what I mean? <laughs> Whatever. I mean, you see another guy at work, you know, hey, how's it going today? Did you better than yesterday? I mean, we just acknowledge it, but I never could make it on my own merit. <clears throat> right? All I had to offer was brokenness, strife, filthy rags. That's all I've got. And he says, that's enough. Let's make the great exchange. He is our best help during temptation. Part of that Greek definition for those words is means to prove and to test. Uh, right now, gold and silver is kind of in the highlight of things, isn't it? All over the world, people want to invest gold and silver, gold and you know, flight to safety stuff and bullion, all that. And I'm not, I'm okay with that. I'm just saying that you would understand the word assay. You know, you want to assay the material. If some guy comes out of Hogan Valley pulling a burrow, he has some saddlebags on it and all grown out in the beard and little funny hat, but he's smiling through two teeth. 
Because he's got a little bag. He just mined out of the side of a hill out there. Where is he headed? Well, you say he's on his way to the assay office. Why? Because they're going to prove out what's really in that ore. You're the gold. You're the ore. And God's smiling every day going, watch this. It's in there. The genuineness of their faith is real. All we need is a little heat, a little chipping, mm-hmm, a little crushing. <laughs> Any volunteers? <laughs> we don't volunteer for this, do we? We just sit in the bag screaming, No! Not me! <laughs> to prove and to try. Okay. And now for my conclusion, which is only 20 minutes. Just kidding. Let's read one more time. Let's read one more time where we started. Hebrews chapter 4. Thank you for your kindness today, your patience, your willingness to go along for this ride I'm on. And I'm enjoying it. This is setting me free. I've been a Christian a long time. A long time. And I read this, it's like first time. (laughs) I'm going, oh, revelations breaking again. God is so deep. He is so deep. You cannot mine him out. He's just about the time you think you got to figure it out. He goes, watch this. And you read the same verse you read a thousand times. And it's like a little door opens. And you got to go way deep in there. And you go, oh, I sure wish I'd have known that 20 years ago. That's why we keep coming back. That's why we get together and talk about it. Somebody's going to, 1 Corinthians 14, 26, one has a revelation. One has an insight. One has a, you know, we got to share these things with each other. And I appreciate you letting me share today. Verse 16, chapter 4, Hebrews. Let us, by the way, this phrase, let us, is found over and over in Hebrews. Let us this, let us that. It's, it's like, because this exists, let's do this. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us come boldly. Do you remember in Acts chapter 4 when uh, persecution was hitting the church? And they whipped them and beat them and sent them home and said, No more testifying about that Jesus guy. And they went back and they showed their scars and their whippings to the guys back in the room. And what did they decide to do? Acts 4.31 said, Let's pray. And they said, God, you know, they've railed against you. And they say we can't preach anymore in your name, so... Give us your anointing so that we can preach all the more. And the whole place started shaking. Right? They were praying for boldness. That was the word, same word. Let us come boldly. They came and said, God, give us boldly. Give us boldness. And God answered by earthquake in the place. He said, I'll give you boldness. Give us forcefulness. Give us direct. Give us unashamedness. Let's hide our face. This is how we're supposed to come before God. There's no closed door. And knowing everything about myself that would prevent me from getting in front of God, I let Jesus come and impute to me His righteousness. And now I can stand holy in front of a holy God. And I come in and I definitely do not want to get out from behind Jesus. Right? And I'm not going to do that. They're going to say, well, Jesus, you park it over there. Let me go on my own. <laughs> We've seen lots of those in the Bible, right? The little piles of ashes and stuff. I don't want to be one of those. I don't want to be Ananias and Sapphira. 
You know, all the guys that carried your husband out are waiting at the door for you. (laughs) This is a holy God. And yet he says, you can come boldly. Why? Because you come in Christ. Come boldly. Let us come boldly before this throne of grace. And there we will find two things in this one verse. There's plenty more, but these two. Mercy. Mercy. Compassion. Tender. Mercy. Kindness. Pity. The sympathy of the high priest. He empathizes. He knows what you're feeling. So come boldly and receive mercy. I also like to apply this. I believe it's very true that the word mercy is talking about past things. Right? If you've broken a law and you appear before the judge, you want mercy. Because the act has already been committed. And now if he'll be merciful, you won't pay the full penalty. So when we come boldly to the throne of grace, first thing we ask for is mercy. I want to find mercy today because I don't deserve to be here. And the king, with the scepter of his righteousness, extends it to us and says, come on in. You won't die today being in the presence of a holy God. Jesus is the scepter of our righteousness. And we get to be in his presence and we find mercy, forgiveness for our past. But then as soon as we receive mercy, we say, now, Father, I need grace. Paul the Apostle suffered. Remember this in, in 2 Corinthians 12? He pled to God to remove this thing that's thorn in the flesh from him. And what did God say? My grace is sufficient for you. That's what I need. That's what you need. We need his grace every day. That's the sufficiency by which we will live and move and have our being by his grace. It's not because we're good enough. It's not because we're handsome or cute or smart or rich or poor. It's not even because you're poor and lonely and destitute. It's because of what Jesus did. And he says, here's my grace. Now you can live this day. Live from me. Let me allow, my, allow me to live my life through you. And uh, let's see how many tests we can pass together. Have I done okay today? Thank you. I've had a lot of fun. And uh, I think you know that. <laughs> and I, uh, I thank God for his grace. I'm just delighted by his undeserved favor today. Lord, your your grace today. Lord, we thank you. You've done all this for us. I'm amazed. I'm astounded. I'm grateful. Father, it just brings me to tears to think about how deeply you've loved us and how often we miss the point. We get caught up doing our own thing, running off, being busy. And we miss out on this grand relationship that you've made available to us. Forgive us. Lord, on that point, we pray, be merciful to us. Forgive us and give us your grace to live from you, to live by you, to live through you, and allow you to live through us. May that grace become effective. May our faith be proven genuine every time you test us and whenever we suffer temptation. May we not lose the confession of our faith, Lord, and may we not trade our confession in just because things get hard. Strengthen us as your people so that we can demonstrate to others who don't know you yet how wonderful it is to live in union with the Creator. Jesus, thank you for being our Savior today. Amen. Amen.
it, I have to agree. I mean, I'm just blessed. I needed to hear this message today. Thank you. I'll tell my boss you said so. <laughs>